Cyber Dandy is back. Cyber Dandy, where's your YouTube channel? Uh, YouTube.com slash Cyber Dandy. All right. So people should go over there and check that out. We we've di- we discussed uh, the Situationists last time. Specifically, we discussed the um, the way that the Situationists were taken up, I think, in, in the English-speaking world. Um, yeah. And the English SI, uh, British SI. Um, so this time, we're just going to talk even more broadly about anarchism as opposed to Marxism. You know, I guess the place to start would be way back with the dispute between Bakunin and Karl Marx. A tragedy and a catastrophe that the left uh, has been, has accepted the idea of humans as uh, historical products, simply reflections of their environment. Because what follows from that, of course, is that there's no moral barrier to molding them any way you like. I mean, if humans have no inner nature, if they don't have an inner instinct for freedom, you know, if it's not fundamental to their nature to have free, creative, productive work under their own control, if that's not part of their nature, then why, you know, there's no, advan- there's no moral reason for allowing them that space. It's really the implicit premise of ecology that the existing world is the best possible world in the sense of it's a balanced world which is disturbed through human hubris. So why do I find this problematic? Because I think that this notion of nature, nature as a harmonious, organic, balanced, reproducing, almost living organism, which is then disturbed, perturbed, derailed, through human hubris, technological exploitation, and so on, is, I think, a secular version of the religious story of the fall. And the answer should be not that there is no fall, that we are part of nature, but on the contrary, that there is no nature. Self-knowledge becomes freedom because of the particular nature of mind and of Hegel's idea that mind is the ultimate reality of the world. You see, in the historical process up to the point at which we recognize that, if you like, it's our world that we are all, up to that point, we have really been pawns in the game. Because what we take to be foreign and hostile aspects of the world are in fact part of us. But once we come to see that we are everything in the world, then we understand the process. We've grasped, if you like, the laws of historical development. And we see that those laws are, in fact, our own reason. And when we come to see that, then we are free because we see the rationality of reality. We no longer struggle against it. We understand it as, in fact, our own, our own rational principle. And we are free to flow along with it and indeed to, to order it and direct it in accordance with those laws of reason. At least there, if not Proudhon and Marx. But yeah, I mean, um, right. We could definitely talk about Proudhon and, Proudhon and Marx's disputes as well. But I, I thought we'd start with the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Which yeah. Marx uh, was an advocate for and which I think I have come around despite my early rad lib anarchist days uh, to accepting as well. 
this idea of a dictatorship of the proletariat. So what would you, I mean, off off the bat, what would your objections be to such a proposal? I mean, so one of the confusing things about the debate between anarchists and Marxists, especially around that term, is that some Marxists define this in a very different way than anarchists have assumed. Right. So, for example, the whole idea of a dictatorship of the proletariat sometimes doesn't really mean a dictatorship in the sense of like uh, Mussolini or Hitler. It means that the working class, the state has been absorbed into the working class. Right. And that has not been really understood. Uh, the, The term has been taken at face value a lot of the time. Yeah. And at face value in a contemporary context. So right. when when Marx talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat, he was juxtaposing it to the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie or the dictatorship of of the capitalist class, um, or the, even the dictatorship of capital, um, mm-hmm. and not to you know the dictatorship of Mussolini or the dictatorship of Fidel Castro, even right, right, it, right. Um, so so yeah, so. But there are still difficulties, I think, in this idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And it, it isn't about how much authority some central figure is going to have or even some party is going to have particularly, but more what is the role of the state going to be after revolution? Like what what do we anticipate needing the state for? Um, what would it mean for their the proletariat to absorb the state? Um, and how long would the dictatorship of the proletariat be considered to be necessary um, also? Yeah. So, uh, so if we back up a little bit and just go back to Marx and Bakunin, mm-hmm. besides the terminology, one of the big conflicts that they had in the first international is the whole idea of uh, an, uh, one part of the first international being the center of the entire organization. Right. And this is what they're, and whether or not to um, give support to parties, political mm-hmm. parties. Mm-hmm. And this is what uh, that and some paranoia about Bakunin's uh, supposed secret society organizations led to uh, Marx convening a Congress at The Hague and uh, with Bakunin and uh, another prominent anarchist in Abstentia and they were voted out of the first international. Right. Uh, and then its center was moved to America. I think at that meeting, if not shortly after. But um, mm-hmm. so a lot of the a lot of the rhetoric was about the dictatorship of the proletariat, but the more substantial issue was how are the working class organizations going to interact with the political parties, whether or not to form one and how to approach parliamentarism. At the time, the social democratic parties certainly would be perhaps a consequence of the um, embrace of, of Marxism. For 150 years, we have been the party people could always depend on because our policies are guided by values, enduring values, which have lost none of their relevance over the past century and a half. 
The working class was sorely oppressed in the 19th century, child labor was common, and there was no safety net to speak of. On May 23, 1863, Ferdinand LaSalle founded the General German Workers Association, a predecessor to the SPD. LaSalle said, if you want to change things, you have to do it yourself. Don't wait for others to help you. Join ranks, join the association, let us talk about what we should do. And that's how it all began. In 1878, Chancellor Otto von Bismarck introduced legislation to ban socialist parties and organizations. There followed 12 years of persecution. Many social democrats were jailed, others fled the country. The ban only lapsed in 1890. The Social Democrats won almost 20% of the vote that year. In 1912, they became the largest party in Parliament. In October 1918, four years into the First World War, German sailors and soldiers rebelled. Workers joined them. On November 9th, the Kaiser abdicated, and SPD leader Philip Scheidemann proclaimed the Republic. During the Weimar Republic, women got the right to vote. The eight-hour working day was introduced, and trade unions came to represent the workers in wage negotiations. Bakunin, I guess you could say, is sort of the beginning of what would be anarcho-syndicalism, mm -hmm. as opposed to Prudhon, who had some more reformist ideas and envisioned something like a, an investment bank that would be used to uh, fund new cooperatives and fund uh, workers' unions, Bakunin had a more collectivist strategy where the workers' unions themselves would get rid of their own bureaucracies and take over the factories and whatnot and run them themselves. That type of anarchism, anarcho-syndicalism, really became the main form of anarchism all the way from the early 1900s till really till today. And all the other types, whether it's individualist, ecologically oriented, like Bookchin, egoist, they're all really defined in response to anarcho-syndicalism. Mm -hmm. So one of the, so on the topic of the state, one of the big problems that comes up is Marxists will often look at what anarcho-syndicalists or anarcho-communists advocate and say, well, isn't that a state? And that's mm -hmm. where things get uh, complicated because if you look at the way that anarchists uh, envision this revolutionary organizing, uh, they would oppose a professional military to a militia would be one way that they would say, okay, this isn't a state because these are voluntary militias. They're not organized through a central bureaucracy. And then the other thing would be uh, subservience to the communist party. So whereas anarchists would see the IWA as being uh, important for coordinating relations among syndicalist unions, uh, communists would see the necessity for a, uh, an ideological vanguard, right? Which would be the communist party mm -hmm. that, would, that would orchestrate the revolution by uh, leading the unions. So in the development of that history, especially in response to the Russian Revolution, uh, what anarchists later came to call a specifismo, or the anarchist platform, was a response to this idea of the party, where 
uh, the communists would say, you know, we need to have control over the Soviets or the syndicates or whatever you want to call them. Anarchists would say, no, what we really need is a specific ideological organization that maintains an ideological purity and is separate, but still uh, inspires the workers' movements. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a little unclear actually when I about the um, the idea of this ideological institution that would inspire. Uh, would this be just a propaganda? Uh, you know, in, you know um, yeah, engine. You know, would they just be um, creating documents, papers? You know, um, would these be the journalists? Um, so. Uh, yeah, you could say propaganda, but in, in another sense, it would be, you know, creating uh, the main positions of anarchists in whatever region. A good example is if you look at like the CNT in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, attached to that was a group called the FAI. Mm-hmm. And the FAI were specifically anarchist, whereas mm-hmm. the CNT would be a little bit more flexible in its membership. And so what you would have is an anarchist organization, which would be setting kind of the ideological standards uh, for for the more general uh, workers movement. And how would they impose those standards? See, that's that's where the difference is. They wouldn't impose them. Right. They would simply uh, propagandize. Right. Uh, How is it that anarcho-syndicalism has led to, it seems to me that it's led to an emphasis on localism um, over time. And that, uh, and also that um, what remains of it today generally isn't seeking political power, but even could be accused of being really leading to lifestyleism or, you know, uh, that the, the, the syndicalism is a theory and then the, uh, the actual practice is something like countercultural lifestyleism and, and, or, or, or at best maybe you have some communes and some attempts to, to create uh, an al- alternative systems of self-government within the capitalist states that, that where they mm-hmm. come up. I mean, I guess the Kurds are also taking up anarchist ideas in their struggle for independence as well. And that's so, political. Yeah. So some of this is a bit of an American bias because mm. um, our labor history here is so liberal that mm. besides the IWW um, and uh, some more radical sections of like the CIO, there's not a really uh, prevalent syndicalist effort in the United States, at least since World War II. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case in France. That's not the case in Spain, Greece, all of these, uh, Latin America, all of these mm-hmm. places still have 
predominant anarcho-syndicalist organizations. And uh, in Spain, for example, what they're dealing with now is trying to get back property that was expropriated from them uh, mm -hmm. when, when Franco took over. I mean, anarchists in the United States and Marxists in the United States are kind of stuck in the same boat where because of the liberal orientation of the unions, we wind up dealing with whether you call them eccentricities or alternative theories or whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of ideas around what can be done when the labor, when the workers aren't organizing themselves mm -hmm. uh, along revolutionary lines. And I think that's where we, you know, we've been stuck really since world war two, but it's just gotten worse. So when you say liberal, orientation of the labor unions do you mean reformist orientation or do you mean alignment with a bourgeois party the democratic party the subsumption of the unions under the democrats politically i don't mean the democrats necessarily i mean uh oriented towards bourgeois political economy they're not revolutionary they're uh mm -hmm. they tend to become managers of labor instead of uh, and holding back strikes and <clears throat> really uh, <laughs> seeking reforms through, for instance, the Democratic Party, but it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, uh, syndicalist movements in other countries might not even be considered legal, but they'll still take strike action and they'll still aim for a general strike, which mm -hmm. is theorized to be the the path to a revolution. Rather than the dictatorship of the proletariat. Like, would you say that those are kind of almost opposing notions? Sort of, but not really, because I think Lenin even considered the self-organization of the working class to be um, really important. It's just mm -hmm. that uh, the emphasis on suppressing reaction, right, was the justification for the need for a strong centralized party. Mm -hmm. So the revolution itself, I think both anarchists and Marxists have generally seen as coming from below. And mm -hmm. because of the uneven development of capitalism, that could look more advanced in one place than another. Yeah, so Marxists would form a party and take over the bourgeois state, whereas anarchists would really try to get rid of all of that infrastructure and uh, use the labor unions themselves as the, the institutional organs of a new society. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to what degree is um, this idea of uh, the labor unions or, or the syndicates taking power different from, uh, you know, council communism or even, you know, the notion of the, the Soviet. They're, they're yeah. very similar, actually. Uh, the whole libertarian socialist tradition is, you know, it's a mix of council communists, autonomists, left communists, whatever you want to call them, uh, mm. and anarcho-syndicalists, anarcho-Marxists even, which there's a few prominent mm. examples, but... Yeah, they're very they're very similar and there's some, you know, very philosophical differences as far as subjectivity and how it's constructed and 
whether or not you could be transhistorical in your analysis and stuff like that. But Marcus um, think you can't be transhistorical right. in your analysis, and and the anarchists tend to think you can be a bit more. Is that a, a lot of them? Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, you know, the what's called post-anarchism, which is like post-structuralist anarchists mm-hmm. would criticize past anarchists for having that sort of transhistorical essentialist idea of subjectivity. There's the issue of the vanguard of the vanguardism, which is kind of, I, I feel like that is still present in the anarchist vision. Only the dif- the difference is what is that vanguard doing? You have a kind of a, a vanguard that is leading ideologically that uh, has, I don't know, it's, they sound almost like they're, in, in, in today's language, they're influencers, you know, they don't, they yeah. don't have any direct say, but they, they set the standards ideologically and they, they, but the, the difficulty with today's influencers is that they aren't, they aren't setting the, the foundation for their own terms. So, you know, you have influencers today that are influencing fashion trends, but they aren't going to influence people's deep uh, understanding of their own subjectivity or their own power. Um, because there's so many presuppositions and that you have to hold to just to become an influencer in yeah. today's market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but how how would the anarchists, uh, you know, ensure that their ideological understanding was the dominant uh, influence on the worker struggle? So I think you got to put it into a context of how this stuff would play out like in a uh, multinational workers organization, right? Mm -hmm. So you could have something like the FAI, which would be like the, the vanguard in in that terminology of anarchist thought Mm -hmm. Uh, in the same organizations as Marxists and other, other sorts of socialists. Um, but they would be advocating along their terms, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just like, you know, we live in the society now where we don't have these strong organizations. Maybe the DSA could serve as an example, but uh, you, so you have to use your imagination a little to think like, okay, who are going to be the anarchists that are elected to represent anarchism in these larger bodies? Right, and that's where that kind of thing would come in. Right. It seems to me like the Marxist uh, uh, party model would allow for the uh, some sort of ideological center to lead by not by deciding what the answers were to every question, but by um, setting the terms of the debates around living political questions in a revolutionary struggle, right? I mean, you would, so rather than the theorists and the influencers going off on their own and and deciding, okay, well, this is what I think is most important to understand ideologically, you know, the, they would be tasked with the political aims of the proletariat, you know, and in a revolutionary struggle and then weigh in and debate what the decisions might be. Yeah. I'm well, so it's, I think the influencer example is really, it applies more to individualist anarchists, right? Right. They, 
so, you know, whether going back to Max Stoner or, uh, uh, like, whatever individualist anarchists are around today, that's sort of like a influencer model. Right. And then we haven't even talked about insurrectionary anarchism, but... Well, tell me about insurrectionary anarchism. So insurrectionary anarchism comes a lot out of French and Italian and Greek theory, uh, anarchist theory. And the model is less oriented towards labor unions and more oriented towards what might be thought of as the social movements, Mm -hmm. where you could take these uh conflicts that are happening in society and they could build up to an insurrectionary potential uh mm-hmm. and the model there is uh some terminology would be like the the notion of contagion where uh um proletarians or lumpen proletarians and others would uh have an insurrection in one place and that would inspire insurrection in another place and so on and so forth until you could uh topple governments and you know i guess an example might be like the arab spring even though it's not the best mm-hmm. example of that but it's it comes out of post may 1968 uh looking at how how there's a potential, a revolutionary or insurrectionary potential outside of the unions. The Coming Insurrection by the Invisible Committee, originally published in 2007. This text from the 2009 Semiotext edition. Everyone agrees it's about to explode. It is acknowledged with a serious and self-important look in the corridors of the assembly, just as yesterday it was repeated in the cafes. There is a certain pleasure in calculating the risks. Already, we are presented with a detailed menu of preventative measures for securing the territory. The New Year's festivities take a decisive turn. Next year, there'll be no oysters. Enjoy them while you can. To prevent the celebrations from being totally eclipsed by the traditional disorder, 36,000 cops and 16 helicopters are rushed out. The thing about insurrection is that it it it's in our you know, current historical experience, those insurrections have created power vacuums mm-hmm. when they've occurred <clears throat> and daily life has kind of fallen into chaos after these insurrections and the need for political authority uh, on, you know, on every level, city level, you know, neighborhood level, uh, national level has arisen immediately, you know, and in, like uh, the Arab Spring in Egypt, it was the military that stepped in right. and filled that void. Uh, yep. And they were, you know, hailed as liberators as they imposed martial right. law. Right. Because they're seen as being distinct from the whatever they called their. Uh... Yeah. They were distinct from the political regime that had come before. They were their own independent uh, source of power, you know. Uh, political force at that moment and they were simply imposing law and order sort of how and and you know making sure like the the streets were cleared of criminals and garbage i think is sort of how i conceive of it um so how do we how do we in through insurrection create the kinds of institutions that can maintain social cooperation 
Uh, yeah, I think that's a good question. I, I mean, I don't, that's not really my, uh, my influence. Right. You're not an insurrectionist, but that's just right. another, right. Um, but do you know how these insurrectionists conceived of the day after, you know, the conceived? I mean, I, so I think what a lot of them will look at is stuff like Hurricane Katrina and how Common Ground Collective and these collectives sort of form organically to fill in that power vacuum. And uh, through their activity, uh, the claim can be made that they are even more competent than the state in that moment. Mm-hmm. So they see they really are spontaneous in that way, where they see uh, neighborhood associations being able to come together and uh, decide through their own decision making processes how they are going to take care of the daily needs of their their own. I mean, but the, the, the claim that they were even more uh, competent than the state is could be taken up as like a pretty right wing claim because, you know, mm-hmm. for a while, the the idea that uh, private um, institutions, nonprofit institutions, charitable institutions are uh, better positioned to take care of. Uh, communities and the most disadvantaged than the state is, and that we can rely upon the institutions of civil society to take care of the of the most disenfranchised people. Um, you know, is is a kind of neoliberal mantra. I mean, so yeah, yeah, it is. And there's actually some interesting similarities between conservative, like. Uh, I think his name is Burke or something like that. Conservative thought and anarcho-communism. Right. Uh, um, I think the difference is the context. I think the the capitalist part of it is pretty important. And of course, anarchists are against nationalism. So, uh, right. But I mean, but the but the rolling back of. Um, the uh, the responsibility of the state under neoliberalism, um, you know, was was not done in the name of. Uh, I mean, it, it in fact often was propped up by state power, right? I mean, the massive amounts of spending on capital at that time, but the 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 mantra was, you know, we're going to get government off your back. We're going to reduce the power of the nation state we're going to uh, free up civil society and i'm not saying that that aim of liberating civil society is a conservative one i'm just saying that um when you point to these small cooperative movements as uh, superior to uh, the state in terms of providing for basic infrastructure and, and people's needs or doing emergency response, um, you know, that in and of itself doesn't seem to me like a revolutionary claim, especially considering that, yes, after Hurricane Katrina, a lot of social services were broken and a lot of people weren't getting um, access to, you know, health care or even shelter or food on the level that they well, uh, required. However, the police were murdering people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, True. The police were, um, 
murdering people and who were trying to f- loot the things that they needed to survive in, in that sure. moment. Right. Um, so, right. So they come in and provide, but they weren't, I mean, like the, there were, there were state agencies that weren't going in and murdering people, but were providing them with, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, services. Uh, and, and the fact that the, you know, the, 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 um, I mean, what hadn't broken down was the expectation in the population that there would continue to be the same political authority, the same nation, the same city structures, you know, that these things were not swept away. Uh, but, and, and I don't think that the looting that went on after Hurricane Katrina could, could conceive, be conceived as a political insurrection. Um, Right. Yeah, that really it depends on that's another terminology thing, uh, yeah. which I think is interesting lately with the whole January 6th uh, reporting, right. calling that an insurrection. And I mean, right. yeah, it's debatable whether or not you could really apply that term. Uh, well, at least it had a political aim, but it wasn't an insurrection. Right. right. By insurrection, we generally mean the breakdown of, of law and order. Right. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>